great to see you. What a beautiful spring day it is out there. Thank you all for coming in, even though the sun is shining outside. Uh, the truth is, if there's anything better than sitting out in the spring sunshine, it is being in here together and getting to sit under God's word, uh, the sunshine of God's word, if you like. Um, would you turn with me in to Colossians chapter 1? Uh, we're going to be looking at Colossians 1, verse 28, to chapter 2, verse 5. And... Um, if you were around, when was it? Was it a couple of weeks ago we had Johnny? Um, yep. So you might, have, you might spot at this point, hang on a minute, I thought we were further on in Colossians. Well, what happened was we booked up Johnny somewhat ahead, uh, and we thought that's where we would get to. So Johnny brought us chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, uh, and did a fantastic job. So helpful. Uh, but due to COVID in the previous month, I think we fell back behind by a week. So we don't want to miss anything in Colossians, so we're going to going to hit this passage that we haven't done, Colossians 1, 28 to 2, verse 5. Uh, it's a bit like a prequel, I guess, in that way, although hopefully more successful than the Star Wars prequels were, but there we go, we won't go into that. Okay, here we go. I've said all that just so you'll find, give you time to find the passage. Uh, let's read from verse 28. Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Uh, and the title I've given to this morning's message is The Heart of Gospel Ministry. It's what this passage is about the heart of gospel ministry. Now I wonder if you recognize uh, any of these marketing slogans. The happiest place on earth. Anyone know that one? Disneyland. Well done then. There are some things money can't buy. For everything else there's MasterCard. Yep. The ultimate driving machine. I know it's not my car. Well that one's BMW. Uh, here's a great one. Snap, crackle, pop. Rice Krispies. Do they still make Rice Krispies? Yeah, I haven't had them for a while. Uh, finger licking good. KFC. Okay, so we, so pretty, we know most of them. Companies and businesses often talk about being clear on their message and their mission. Uh, sometimes purely just for marketing's sake. But also sometimes because they recognize they'll only be fruitful if they're clear on what it is that they want to achieve. Uh, humanly speaking, I think there are a few people in the history of the church, maybe the history of the world, who've been more fruitful in life than the Apostle Paul. He planted and strengthened churches wherever he went, and he was largely responsible, humanly speaking, for the gospel spreading out into the Gentile world. Now, ultimately, of course, Paul's fruitfulness was all down to God. But God's blessing on Paul's efforts didn't negate the need for Paul to work hard in the ministry that God had given him. 
In fact, it was precisely because he knew that God had given him his message and his mission that Paul was so willing to pour his life and soul into it. And so here in this morning's passage, he wants the Colossians to know precisely what his message and mission is. He wants them to know what it is that gets him out of bed in the morning, that maybe keeps him up late at night, so that they can know his heart for them, and so that they can in turn share his heart for other people. So what we have then in this passage is something of a window into the heart of a true gospel minister. Uh, and honestly, this is, this is a passage that Pete and I as pastors read with an equal measure of excitement and soberness. It, it's both inspiring and daunting as we see here Paul's rich description of a true minister of the gospel. But this is certainly not just a, a passage for pastors and missionaries, so don't, don't go to sleep now. It is equally a call to all believers to pursue gospel ministry alongside Paul. Because as he reminds us elsewhere, while some of us might be called, he uniquely called to be an apostle, but some are called to be evangelists and pastors and teachers, we are all of us as Christians called to the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. That's Ephesians 4 verse 12. We're all called to the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So this morning's verses are really an invitation to us all to grow in our heart for doing gospel ministry, to have a heart like Paul's for building up the body of Christ. Now what we find here in particular are four ingredients that get right to the heart of gospel ministry. I've, I've managed to get them under four M's. We've got the message, the method, the mission, and the means. So first of all, the message. The first and most striking thing that we learn about Paul's ministry here is that his message is not like so many other messages. It's not built around an idea or a philosophy or a lifestyle view or a political point of view. You know, there are, there are so many people and pundits in our world today with messages like those. But Paul's message is different. Paul's message centers on a person. Christ was his message. Look at that. He says, verse 24, him we proclaim. Paul's message is Jesus. He proclaims Christ himself. Formally and informally, in public and in private, wherever Paul could be found, you'd find him talking about Jesus. This was his passion, to point people to Jesus, to the one who had already so transformed Paul's life and to the one who could also so transform the lives of his listeners. Christ was his message. And that in itself, I think, can feel quite radical, can't it? It can feel quite challenging. Often we're tempted to talk to other people about anything else but Jesus. We tell people about church. We share about our own personal faith. We, we might pass on nuggets of lifestyle wisdom from God's word all good things in their own way. But if you're anything like me, it's sometimes the hardest thing of all to actually just talk to someone about Jesus. Shouldn't we tell them, we wonder, about the benefits of being a Christian first? About the rewards that being a Christian can bring? Won't those things entice them in and build up to an opportunity to tell them about Jesus? 
Well, certainly Paul also loves to tell people all about the many benefits and blessings of being a Christian, but he never lost sight of where all of that treasure was to be found. It was found in Jesus. He knew that Jesus was like the big X that marks the spot on a treasure map. He knew that Jesus was where the treasure was to be found. Have a look at verse 3 of chapter 2. In whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not some of the treasures, but all of the treasures are hidden in Christ. Paul's message then was basically that Christ was a, the ultimate storehouse of divine wisdom and spiritual knowledge. I mean, just think about a few of the things we've already heard in uh, chapter 1 and then a little bit of chapter 2 now of Colossians. Just in that small space of time, here's where we've seen some of the treasures that are in Christ. We've seen that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the creator and sustainer of all things. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We've seen that in him is redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. In him is all that we will ever need for this life and the next, as individual believers and as his church. In him is joy and peace in the face of suffering and sure and certain hope in the face of death. In him is that mystery, once hidden for ages and generations, but now fully revealed, that utterly life-transforming mystery and reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory. And those things even are just the tip of the iceberg. That's just the beginning of all of the treasures that await us to be discovered in Jesus. All the treasures of divine wisdom and knowledge have been deposited into him for us. And so Paul's message, Paul's passion, is simply that everyone everywhere would come to know Christ for themselves to know, first of all, how they can gain forgiveness and new life in him and then know how to continue living in him, rooted and built up in him and overflowing with thanksgiving. Uh, Pete and I, as, as your pastors, can honestly say, by God's grace, we share Paul's passion for you. We long for you to know more of the riches that are found in Christ. And we long for you to enjoy him more and more. To know that he is all that you will ever need. That you can never ever exhaust the treasures that God has laid up for you in him. That is our heart for you as your pastors. And what an honour it is to serve as your pastors. It's also such a source of joy for us to see how you already share this passion of Paul's to speak often of Jesus. To see the way that you proclaim Christ and love to make him known, both to those who know him already and to those who don't. Christ is Paul's message and by the grace of God, Christ is our message as a church together as well. Our hearts and our lips, they want to proclaim Jesus, don't they? We do love to speak of him together, don't we? And I know that many of us long to get better at speaking of him just more openly and naturally and confidently to others as well. To remind each other and tell the world around us about his greatness and his goodness too. What we need is regular help and encouragement to know how. 
Which is why it's so helpful that here in verse 28, Paul tells us not only first of all his message, Jesus, but also then secondly, his method. He tells us how he proclaims Christ. So this is our second heading for this morning, the method. Uh, If this morning's passage was in a cookbook, what we've just seen, I guess, perhaps was the ingredients list, basically Christ. Now, Paul is going to show us how to cook the meal. This next part is the written instructions on how to produce this glorious meal. Paul's proclaiming Christ involves, he tells us, two non-negotiable and complementary things. It involves both warning and teaching. So have a look at verse 28 again. He says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So he does this proclaiming of Christ and this talking about Christ by warning and teaching. Uh, So let's tackle the most uncomfortable of those first, the one that we're not so drawn to, warning. Uh, This could also often be translated admonishing. It literally means to straighten out someone's thinking. And the truth is we all need help at various times to have our thinking straightened out. Left to ourselves, none of us think rightly about God or ourselves. At the very root of my sin and your sin is the thinking that actually in a whole variety of ways, I ought to be God of my life and God himself most certainly should not be God in my life. As sinners, that's where our hearts tend to go. We all have a tendency to go astray in our thinking about God. And on such occasions, what we need is loving admonishment. We need loving warning. Admonishment, warning, is the act of steering someone away from that dangerous, delusional thinking and steering them back onto the path of truth, the path of knowing and enjoying the goodness of life under God. So admonishment, warning, is is therefore, it's an act of love. It is an act of love. It's essential, first of all, in our evangelism, as we tell people who perhaps have never been told this before, that they have sinned and wandered far from God, and that the path that they're on will only lead to judgment and death unless they turn back and look to Jesus to be saved. But the warning element in Paul's ministry is not just in his evangelism. It's not just directed to those who aren't yet Christians but to those who are as well. Do you notice, have a look down again, his repeated use of the word everyone here. Everyone. He warns everyone. What that tells us is that we all need at different times to be admonished and warned. Every Christian needs regular course corrections. I need them and you need them. Mark Maynell writes, starting in the right place is never a guarantee of staying on track. Just ask a ship's navigator. Because of all the different forces at work out at sea, a ship's course needs constant adjustment. And so too do we. All throughout our Christian lives, we're all susceptible to drifting off course. We're all susceptible to being gradually enticed away from Jesus by other things. Losing sight of all those treasures that God has laid up for us in him. Uh, I felt like I shared this recently, but I can't think where. Maybe it was here, but think of the character, again, Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. He was constantly drawn off course and into difficulties by all sorts of distractions, whether it was uh, reminders of past sins, 
the law of new temptations, whether it was doubts and feelings of despair or weariness or complacency, by pride and self-sufficiency, by the promise of worldly treasures. He needed regular, strong, loving warnings to help him see his danger and to help him find his way back onto the king's highway. I love that John Bunyan calls it that, the king's highway. That's the path that we're meant to walk on, that we sometimes veer off from and we need help to get back to. We need that help. Christian needed that help, and so did the Colossians. One of Paul's main purposes in writing this letter to them is to warn them not to be duped or fooled into walking away from Jesus. Have a look at down, look down at chapter 2, verse 4. He says, I say this, all of this, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now we're going to investigate more about what those plausible arguments, what those tempting delusions are uh, in future weeks, maybe over the next couple of weeks. But the key thing here to see right now is that warning, admonishment, is not a bad thing. It plays a vital role in both our witness and in our life together as a church. We need people around us who love us enough to tell us when we're going the wrong way. It's an empty love indeed that will allow others, supposedly people we love, to wander off of moral cliff edges or down spiritual ravines or to be lost in unrepentant sin without warning and even pleading with them to please turn back to God. But I think as well we all know there is of course a right way and a wrong way to do this, to warn and admonish. And here perhaps is why all of us have a tendency to shy away from both giving it and receiving it. The wrong way is to look down on others proudly. You know, to see they've gone astray and then to criticize them, berate them and condemn them. True biblical admonishment is not haughty or self-righteous or superior. It's not tainted with disapproval or disappointment. On the contrary, it should be full of grace, humility, compassion and tenderness. It should be full of proclaiming the treasures and the mercies of Christ. It, it, true admonishment is like putting our arms around someone, someone we love, lifting their eyes once again to see Jesus and then encouraging them to come back with us onto the king's highway. Paul proclaims Christ he, and he loves people by admonishing everyone. And secondly, he proclaims Christ by teaching everyone as well. Uh, and this really is the positive counterpart to that warning ministry. He teaches everyone positively about all the riches that there are in Jesus. Uh, and I love here that what Paul teaches is so simple and yet so vast all at the same time. Uh, maybe you've heard that, that old illustration of the, the gospel being like something shallow enough for a child to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. Well, here's what's happening here with Paul. What he teaches is so simple and yet so vast. What does he teach? Quite simply, Christ. But where does he teach Christ from? All of the scriptures. As he reassured the Colossians back in uh, chapter 1, verse 25, both he and Epaphras, as gospel ministers, had committed themselves, he says, to make the word of God fully known. So to proclaim Christ is to make the word of God fully known. 
And to make the word of God fully known is to proclaim Christ, uh, which is, of course, what Jesus revealed to those two disciples that he uh, shocked and surprised on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. And we were talking about this. Um, is anyone? Oh, some G2s are in here. I can see Alfie. Um, we were talking about this in G2 on Friday night, how this must have been the best Bible study session in the history of the world, uh, although maybe they didn't quite realize it until the very end. But what Jesus did was he opened their eyes to see how every page of the scriptures was ultimately all about him. Proclaiming Christ and teaching the Bible go together. Paul is convinced that people can't know Christ better without knowing the scriptures better. That it's the scriptures that are able to make us wise for salvation, 2 Timothy 3, for salvation through faith in Christ. So Paul's teaching isn't minimalist and simplistic. He dives deep into God's word, declaring the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, 27. And that takes great effort and great wisdom, he says here. And yet still, quite simply, at the end of the day, his message is simply Jesus. The truth is, churches stand or fall depending on their commitment to this message. Depending on their commitment to proclaiming Christ from all the scriptures, a church that does not faithfully teach the scriptures has effectively given up proclaiming Christ. And a church that does not proclaim Christ has effectively ceased to be a church. The teaching and the preaching of God's word is the very heartbeat and lifeblood of God's people. Which is why Pete and I take with utmost seriousness God's charge to us as pastors to teach and preach the word, to do it in season and out of season, in public and in private, on a Sunday and in the week from house to house. It's why we don't apologize for setting aside uh, 30 or sometimes closer to 40 minutes on a Sunday morning to preach God's word. Uh, but we know it's why you don't complain either, but you genuinely look forward to it with us. Even in spite of the very average teaching gifts of your pastors, but we all know we, we love to hear Christ proclaimed and taught from God's word because we love to see Jesus. That's why we're here. And yet this call to warn and to teach, again, is not restricted to pastors alone either. Just listen to what Paul says a little later on in this letter. Uh, Colossians 3.16. Someone really ought to do a study of how many of the 3.16s are really important verses in the Bible. I know there's a few. John's one of them, but here's Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So he's addressing the whole church now. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom so we're all called in our own way to proclaim Christ by teaching and admonishing one another some of us more publicly uh, maybe more of us uh, more privately and personally but we're all called to this as members of God's people now perhaps that prospect just daunts us greatly we understand pastors and leaders warning and teaching others, but we wonder how could God expect me to do this or play a part in this? How could he expect me to either reach out to my non-Christian neighbor across the street and to reach out to my Christian neighbor across the aisle? But think again about what it is that God is calling us to share and proclaim to others. 
not ourselves, not our own meager abilities. He's calling us to share Christ and his saving riches. So the important thing is not how impressively you and I can talk about Christ. The important thing is how impressive the Christ is that we're telling others about. As George Whitfield once said, other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. God could not have entrusted you and I with a better gospel and a better Jesus than the one that he has to graciously pass on and proclaim to others. We get to talk about Jesus. What a privilege and an honor that is and something that God will help us with. Okay, so where have we come so far? Paul's message is Jesus. His method of proclaiming Jesus is through admonishing and teaching everyone. But what's his mission? What's his goal? What is it that he's ultimately hoping to achieve? What is it that we should be aiming for ourselves when we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom? Well, that brings us thirdly to the mission. Here is the, um, uh, the, the, I guess, the picture in the cookbook. Here is what we're aiming for. Here is what the final product is meant to look like. The thing that that message and the method have been aiming for. But what was Paul aiming for? We might think, because he's Paul the great evangelist, that really he's just aiming for converts. More churches, more converts, more people destined for heaven, not hell. Now certainly Paul was eager for all of those things. But what he was actually aiming for, he tells us, was something much more. His sights were set on nothing less than mature Christians. So look down, I've... Oh, uh, where, is, where is he says this? Oh, yeah. He says that we may present everyone mature in Christ, verse 24 again. In many ways, Paul's heart was like that of a parent. Uh, it struck me this week that the goal of parenting is not just to have lots of children. It is to raise children. That's the goal of parenting. The, the, the real God-given goal of parenting is not just to have children, but to raise them. And what got me thinking about this is I was uh, putting a few more books on the shelves in the church library. Okay, subtle plug there for the church library. Uh, we've now got a whole shelf on parenting. And what stood out to me as I was putting the books on was that none of the books were simply about having children. Uh, not that there couldn't be books. I'm sure there are books about that. But most parenting books are about the far more complex task of raising children, of maturing them. And likewise, Paul's mission was not simply to win people to Christ, although he certainly earnestly wanted that, but he also wanted to eventually bring every convert to spiritual maturity, to do as Jesus instructed in Matthew 28, to not simply make converts, but disciples, teaching them to follow Christ and observe all his commands. Uh, and look down again, verse 24 again, that word everyone uh, it appears here once again for the third time that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I think that word everyone is a really encouraging word and not one that we should overlook this morning. Because it tells us not only that we all should, but we all can grow and mature. I wonder perhaps sometimes you felt like you can't mature, that you don't really matter in God's plan for his church? 
that though you'd like to grow, you don't think maybe you're clever enough or wise enough to do so. Maybe you worry that you're not simply on God's radar or, or, or not on the pastor's radar for spiritual growth. But you are, Paul says. If you're a Christian, you are included in God's plan to ultimately present everyone mature in Christ. If you're a member of this church, you're on our radar as well, on our hearts as pastors to do all we can to help you grow and mature. And you are on the hearts of many other brothers and sisters in this room as well who are also eager to help you grow and for you to help them grow. We need as well those people around us who are willing to point out ways that they see God already at work in us. People who are willing to look upon us and say, I see how God is maturing you because he will be. But it's so often difficult to see, isn't it? So hard to see this in ourselves. One reason it can be hard for us to discern it in ourselves is that Christian growth is not an overnight thing. And I suspect many of us have worked that out by now. But maybe some of us are still hoping for, for an overnight change. No, Christian growth is a lifelong process. It's not fast for any of us. By God's design, it's like the tortoise and not the hare. It's very slow. And I'll never forget uh, what I think was at least one pivotal moment in my Christian life. Uh, I was away on a Christian union weekend away, aged uh, 18, so not that long ago. Uh, and a thank you. And uh, a friend and I approached the speaker on the weekend, the, the guy who was, who was uh, preaching God's word to us, because we were deeply impressed by both his knowledge of God's word and his love for Jesus. And I certainly felt like I knew so little of either. And so we asked him to tell us the secret of how we could be like him. And I guess what we were asking, though we didn't quite know it, was for him to tell us how to become a mature disciple of Jesus like him. And I'll never forget the essence of the answer he gave us. Uh, it's no exaggeration to say that I think that the whole direction of my Christian life was changed in this moment, especially my desire to grow as a Christian and uh, my desire to be more committed to be a part of God's people. He said, there are no easy shortcuts. He said, the only way to grow is to day by day, give yourself to the slow and steady study of God's word and to give yourself to being amongst God's people. And as year follows year, you'll be changed and you'll grow and you'll come to know Jesus better as well. And what he did in those uh, few sentences was to not only cut through my laziness and shallowness as a Christian by warning us there were no easy paths to growth, but he also gave me a newfound hope that, yes, slowly but surely, with effort and God's help, I too could actually mature and grow. And that's when I began to commit to church much more seriously. It's when I began to really read my Bible properly and to start reading other Christian books as well. And as I think about it now, I realize that what that speaker did for me and my friend was exactly what Paul is describing here. He both warned us not to look for easy shortcuts. And he also taught us that God had provided a way for us to grow. Well, certainly that's what Paul is doing here, encouraging us that although growth doesn't happen overnight, yet if month after month and year after year, 
you're opening and studying your Bible, and you're having conversations with other people about Jesus, you and I will grow. But what is it exactly that we're aiming for in that growth? You know, back to parenting, there are all sorts of, uh, all sorts of marks of maturity that you're aiming for as a parent. Everything from getting children to a place where they can wash and dress themselves and not throw their dinner up the wall. That's a good milestone. To a point where they can earn a living and drive a car and move out to make a new home and life for themselves. And that's not to mention all of the added spiritual goals that Christian parents have. But what does Christian maturity look like? What are the marks of a mature Christian that Paul is aiming for? Well, look down at chapter 2, verse 2. According to that verse, maturity looks like three things. Chapter 2, verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So a mature Christian is one who is, first of all, encouraged in heart strengthened in heart, increasingly filled with joy and peace, having hearts that are fortified and instilled with courage as they're filled more and more with thoughts of Jesus, with knowing and resting in Christ himself. So it looks like encouraged hearts. Secondly, a mature Christian is one who is knit together with other believers, not given to division and disunity, but to being joined to other Christians having our lives woven together with theirs, united in truth and united in love. It looks like not doing the Christian life on our own, but being committed passionately and wholeheartedly to a church family, playing our part in Christ's body. And thirdly, it looks like being assured in our understanding being more certain of what we believe, less susceptible to every wind of doctrine, no matter how plausible that false doctrine might sound, knowing more fully and intimately the genuine article, being able to recognize the true gospel at a glance, which Paul calls here God's mystery, which is Christ. Now, importantly, with those three marks of maturity, we can't pick and choose from them. We're not going to sort of just pick our favorite one. We can't just say to ourselves, oh, well, I'm more of an intellectual Christian. I'll mature simply by focusing on my studies in God's word. You know, I, I don't need or have the time to pursue fellowship and service in the church. No, 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 I'll just study. And we also can't say to ourselves, well, the diligent study of God's word, no, that, that's not really for me. I'm not a reader. I'm not a big thinker. I'll mature and grow simply by serving practically or by even applying my business acumen into the church. Now, neither of those approaches will produce growth in us. All three markers of maturity Paul is describing here must grow together or we simply won't grow at all. Kent Hughes writes, here's the point. When we love him and love the scriptures and love the church so that we are united in love with each other, then the mystery unfolds and we are in touch with all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We must study the scriptures about him intensely with all our heart and we must love him and his people with all our heart and then we will know as we ought. And finally, how do we get there? How do we grow? How do we, like Paul, help others to grow with us 
too. Well, fourthly and finally and very briefly, he talks about the means. He shows us the means. In a strange way, I find it so reassuring what Paul himself writes here. He, he tells us that he doesn't find any of this easy. Look at verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Just look first of all at those two words that describe what I think we know is a, is a shared experience for us too. Toil and struggle. That word toil speaks of working to the point of exhaustion. That word struggle refers to taking part in an athletic event or even a battle. Do you ever feel exhausted serving Christ in your church life, in your home life, in your work life? Paul did. Do you ever feel like you're in a battle to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and to help others fix their eyes on Jesus too, or, or, or even to help, him, help them see him for the very first time. Does that ever feel like a battle for you? It did for Paul. So how did he keep going? Did Paul eventually learn to just sit back and let go and let God? No, it wasn't that. Not at all. He kept on pouring himself out for the church uh, First Thessalonians, Thessalonians 2 verse 9, he says, Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. He worked hard. So where did Paul's remarkable energy come from? It came, he says, from God. It was his energy that he powerfully worked within me. The Christian life is, is enough to sap the strength and eventually burn out even the fittest and most energetic Christian who tries to go it alone, to live reliant on themselves. But if, you, if we work diligently for the Lord while acknowledging our need for him, our dependence on him, knowing that all that we do can only be done in the strength that he provides, then... While it will still involve toil and struggle and hardship, he will sustain us with all the energy that he so powerfully provides. That is Paul's testimony to us this morning. God will give us all we need to grow. He will give you all that you need and I need to help others around us grow as well. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And it's this very reminder that God is at work, both in us and through us towards others, that is meant to spur us on this morning in our Christian lives. Spur us on to know Christ and grow in Christ and serve others by proclaiming Christ. It's meant to spur us on to devote our lives to gospel ministry. We can pour our lives out into gospel work precisely because we know that God is at work as we work God is at work that is the great encouragement and there could be no greater confidence or privilege that we could have let's pray heavenly father we thank you for the gift of your word to us today oh lord that once again in it you have shown us Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge Father, please help us to know him and prize him and proclaim him more eagerly. Lord, please help us to mature in him.
Help us to help others to mature in him too, or even to meet him for the very first time. May we pour ourselves out in service of others, sustained by the supernatural energy that you alone, Lord, can work in us, so that ultimately we might together be encouraged in heart, knit together in love, and richly assured in our knowledge of Christ. In the name of Jesus, our Saviour, we pray. Amen.